Continuing our readings in 1 John, we're in chapter 5, and I'm going to read from verse 6 to verse 12. That's 1 John, chapter 5, verses 6 to 12. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water alone, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. We accept man's testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which he has given about his son. Anyone who believes in the son of God has this testimony in his heart. Anyone who does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because he has not believed the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. This is the word of the Lord. I don't know what experience you have of being in a court of law. Perhaps it's part of your job and you're there regularly in a professional capacity. Perhaps you've done jury service and sat there as part of the jury. Perhaps you've been on trial and been the defendant. Perhaps, like me, you've been a witness. Or perhaps you've just watched lots of TV courtroom dramas. My appearance in court twice was over 40 years ago. I was called to be a witness. In the first trial, I had to identify that a radio cassette, those were quite trendy in those days, and various articles of clothing actually belonged to me and how I could prove they were mine. There'd been a burglary at my house. Also giving witness statements at the time and being witnesses was the police officer who'd recovered the property from someone else, his house, and a person who'd seen another person wearing my clothes. We all had to agree on the same story. We didn't have to agree, we all gave evidence on the same story. My second appearance was so months later because also in that burglary, a cheque had been taken out of a chequebook and someone tried to withdraw cash on it, pretending to be me. So I was called upon to be a witness that I was actually teaching physics at the time that the person went into the bank and that I had had this cheque taken from my house. Also giving evidence was the person who worked in the bank who recognised that it wasn't me cashing the cheque and also the police officer who'd come to the bank 
and arrested the person. We were the witnesses. And if you've been in a courtroom, you know that the idea is that the witnesses present what they know and testify to what happened. And on the basis of that, a judgment is made. I tell those stories to give you a sense of how to get into this passage that we're looking at this morning. Because to understand what we read in 1 John 5, the key verses that, if you like, unlock what's going on are verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And if you can get that sense of a courtroom and witnesses into your mind, it will help us to understand the passage. So, if you could turn to the passage in 1 John 5, that would be great. If you've got a Bible or a device handy. And as you do that, I'm going to pray that the Lord would open it up to us and help us to understand what's been said. Father, we pray that as we come to look at your word this morning, your spirit would be present amongst us. That your spirit would open up your word, that we'd be able to understand it, and we'd be able to see how it applies to our lives. Father, we pray that you speak to us this morning through your word. Amen. Okay, so we're going to go on and look at this passage and we're going to look at four different points that come out of it and I want us to begin by thinking about what is the focus of the testimony that these witnesses are giving what is the focus that we're asking or they're asking us to look at now if you're here last week you know that we looked at the first five verses and verse five ends in these words who is it that overcomes the world only the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God and then verse six goes on this is the one who came by water and blood Jesus Christ so the focus of their testimony was that Jesus is the Son of God and that he had come into the world. Now that was a bit of a mind-blowing thought to the people that John had spoken to, that Greek audience that he had. Because as we said when we said the Creed, John's Gospel begins, in the beginning was the word, the Logos. The idea, the concept, the word. And John presents his gospel in this way, and it's different to the other gospels because it doesn't start with real people. It starts with this thing called the world. And I have to say to you, when I was a child, we often read this beginning of John's gospel, don't we, at Christmas. And here it read at Christmas, and often it comes as I used to think, why is John writing in riddles? Why doesn't he just spell it out? In the beginning was Jesus. It'd be so much easier for people to understand. But that's to miss the point that John is speaking to a people who struggled with the concept 
that God could be a person. And so he starts this idea of the world, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he hooks them onto that. And then as you read through, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it. And then we get to verse 14 of that first chapter, and then he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Wow. The Greek listeners thought, what on earth is that? We could cope with this concept of the word, the idea, the concept. But then it became a person and lived amongst us. Wow. That really goes against the grain. That isn't part of our thinking. That's where it all changed. You see, the Greeks thought the gods were separate. They weren't human beings. They didn't mix with human beings. They were separate. And John is saying, this word came and lived among us. It means you know we've got a God who knows what it's like to be a human being. Who knows what it's like to suffer human emotions, to be happy and to be sad. To feel lonely, to be rejected, to be a refugee. This God has become a man. And throughout his gospel, John is keen to get that across. That God isn't separate, but he became a man and dwelt among us. And we can look at Jesus and we can see in Jesus God. Because Jesus is God. And for those Greeks, that was absolutely mind-blowing. They couldn't cope. Or most of them couldn't. But some saw some truth in that. And some recognised that Jesus was different. And recognised that Jesus was God. And turned to him and followed him. And became part of the church. But at the time that John is writing this epistle... Some doubts are beginning to emerge. How can they be sure? Different people are rising, are trying to explain it differently, putting a different twist or spin on it to make it culturally more acceptable. So it's not so quite so mind blowing. But John says, This is the one who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the witnesses that we're going to look at in this passage are witnessing to that fact. That Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, is God himself. So let's have a look at the three witnesses. Well, as I said... In verse 8, it's spelled out very clear. For the three that testify, verse 7, the spirit, the water, 
and the blood. And this phrase, the water and the blood, crops up in verse 6 on two occasions. John writes, this is the one who came by water and the blood, Jesus Christ. He didn't come by water only, but by water and blood. Now, this phrase water and blood isn't one that I think we use very often today. Everyone seems to think that to the people that John was writing to, it was a pretty common phrase and one they would be used to. The only problem is it's not entirely clear to us now what John was referring to. Some people have suggested that in talking about water and blood, it's talking about the sacraments of baptism and communion. And Luther and Calvin followed that line, went along with that. Some saying that it's referring to the time when Jesus was on the cross and they came along to break his legs. The soldiers came along to break his legs so that he'd die more quickly. But they'd found he'd died already. And to check, they plunged a spear into his side and out flowed water and blood. And um, that's possible. But it seems an awful lot is hanging on that one little incidence. And so most people consider that this water and blood probably refers to the start of Jesus' public ministry and the end of Jesus' public ministry. So Jesus who came by water and blood. So if you think back to the gospel stories at the beginning... We generally have something in most of them about the birth of Jesus. And then the next person we see is John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is going around baptizing people and urging them to turn to God. And then Jesus comes to John the Baptist to be baptized. And I'm sure you'll know the story that uh, you can go back to the Gospels and read it. That as Jesus is baptized, as he's coming out of the water... The heavens open and the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove. And a voice comes from heaven that says, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You are my son. Right at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry on earth, God pronounces him to be his son. That's the beginning. Came through water and blood. So Jesus, at the start of his ministry, is proclaimed by God the Father to be his son. And he goes on from that point to call his disciples and then spend the next three years going around the country, talking about God, urging people to repent and to follow him. The blood, on that basis, refers to the death of Jesus, through which Jesus' ministry was completed. You see, death on the cross marked the end of Jesus' public ministry. Yes, he appeared after the resurrection to some people, but it wasn't like he could just turn up at a spot where he was going to be speaking and see him. But in the cross and at the cross, Jesus' ministry came to an end and was also completed and finished. 
And so John, in his Gospel in chapter 19, as he accounts the, writes the account of the death of Jesus, says that Jesus knew that everything had been finished and the scripture would be fulfilled. And Jesus says, I'm thirsty. And so they bring him wine vinegar on a sponge. And when he receives the drink, Jesus says, it is finished. And with that, he bowed up his head and gave up his spirit. And John ends this account by saying, talks then about the come to break his legs. Ends his things. Now these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones would be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. So here is Jesus at the end of his life, in agony, dying on the cross, and being recognised as the fulfilment of prophecy. As the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy, as the Son of God, the Messiah. And John is saying that Jesus came, began with the water, baptism, ended with the blood of the cross. And both of those give testimony that Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus from Nazareth, this apparently ordinary man, was God himself. The language John uses is very precise. Because one of the false ideas that was going around at this time was that Jesus came to the earth. Well, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and at his baptism, God descended on him. He became God at that point. And at some point before the cross, he stopped being God. And God left him. And John is being very precise, and he uses the word by or through. He doesn't use any definite articles in this. Because he's saying that Jesus came from heaven through baptism when his ministry began, went around the country preaching, proclaiming the kingdom of God, went through blood, death, and ascended back up to heaven. He didn't start being God at baptism. He didn't stop being God at the cross. He started being God in heaven. He came through baptism, ministered through death, and ascended back up to heaven all as God. And John is clear to get that across. What about the Spirit, the third witness? Because he says, and it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. Now, in John 15, Jesus talks about the counsellor or the advocate who will come and be with the disciples after he's left them. And he says, when the counsellor or advocate comes, whom I sent you from the Father, the spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, he will testify about me. The third witness is the Holy Spirit. See, the Holy Spirit takes the word of truth, the word of God, and makes us into children of God. And how does he do that? Because he opens our eyes to see the reality of Jesus. 
For those Greek hearers that John was writing to, the idea of Jesus being God was an anathema. But some of them believed. And why did they believe? Because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, had opened their eyes and made them see that it did make sense and enabled them to see that Jesus was God. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached and 3,000 people were converted, became Christians. Have you wondered why? It's not like new evidence had merged between Easter Day or the Ascension and the day of Pentecost. It wasn't like Peter had come out with a new explanation. It was the work of the Holy Spirit speaking to people who knew what had happened. And suddenly, as we say, the penny dropped. It clicked. It made sense. They understood it for the first time. On May the 24th, 1738, quarter to nine in the evening, John Wesley was at the meeting of the Moravians and Luther's preface to the apostle, uh, Luther's preface to the letter to the Romans was read. And he records, I found my heart strangely warmed. He was already a vicar. He already knew about things of God. Why was his heart warmed on that occasion? Because the spirit of truth had opened it up to him, had made it make sense. On April the 28th, 1920, Watchman Nee, that Chinese Christian, brought up in a Christian family, been to a Christian school, aged 17, went to a revival meeting and heard Dory Yu preaching. And for the first time saw the heavy weight and severe penalty of his own sins. And that his sins had placed him in the path of God's wrath. It wasn't anything he didn't know before. Suddenly it made sense. Because the spirit testified to him, to the truth of Jesus. My own experience is the same. Age 10, sat in number one room at the church I went to in Birmingham. I didn't hear anything I hadn't heard before, but suddenly, on that evening, it made direct sense. Because the spirit of truth testified to who Jesus is. And it made sense in a personal way, in a direct way, and in a way that demanded and needed a response from me. I'm old enough to have been seen Billy Graham, and some of you will have done as well. And one of the things that amazed me about Billy Graham, that evangelist, is his talk, and his talk wasn't very impressive. But at the end, he'd encourage people to get up out of their seats, that was his catchphrase, and come down to the front to commit their lives to Jesus. And you sat there, and I found myself sitting there thinking, I don't think anyone responded. What he said hasn't been that special. And yet people got up in their hundreds and came down and committed themselves to following Jesus. Why? Because the spirit of truth testified to Jesus. That's the third witness. The spirit that speaks into our hearts, that makes what we've heard before hundreds of times suddenly seem very real and very right, very direct 
and very personal to us. And that's the third witness. Let's move on, and we'll move on quickly in case you're getting worried. So what do these three witnesses tell us? Well, we find this in verses 11 and 12, and this is the testimony. And there's three things. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son, and whoever has the Son has life. God has given us eternal life. It's not something you can earn. It's not something you can win as a prize. It's not something you can achieve. It's not something you can buy with your wealth. Only comes from God. The group just sang to us, didn't they? Rock of Age, Cliff Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. That's the reality. Eternal life is a gift from God. You can't do anything in terms of your own skills, your own abilities, your own greatness to get it. The second thing is that eternal life is found in Jesus. And it's only by recognizing who Jesus is and what he did on the cross and that he is God and that he came to this earth. Although a man, he was God and he died to pay the penalty for our sins. It's only through recognizing that and trusting that that we find eternal life. Jesus Christ is the source of eternal life. And the third thing that they testify to is that eternal life starts now. Whoever has the Son has life. You see, yes, eternal life is about what goes on in the future. But it begins now. And Jesus was clear in his ministry that he came so that we might have life and have life to the full. Life in all its fullness. You see, as Jesus' kingdom starts now and goes into the future, so that eternal life starts now. You see, life is more than going to work to earn money, to pay the mortgage, to pay the food, to get up the next day to go to work again. It isn't just a hamster wheel that keeps going. It isn't about the same old drudge, the same old dreariness. The same old problems. It's about life being rich and full. And that's the life lived with Jesus. And it's very easy for us to feel that pressure, materialism of the life, and get onto that hamster wheel. But that isn't the life that Jesus is offering. It isn't the life that Jesus brings. Jesus brings an eternal life, a rich life. So we appreciate the fullness of life. And we're able to revel and worship in that. It starts now. And the question I'd like to ask you this morning is, are you living life in its fullness? Or is life just that dreariness? Do you need to take a step back and say, have I got wrapped up in the wrong things? I need to reflect on, again, the fullness of life that Jesus brings.
and experience it now and look for a fresh reminding about that. But the other thing that John says in this passage is what is your verdict? You see, it says there's three witnesses testifying that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. And if three people testified about something called the law, you'd believe them. But it's not just them, it's God saying this. So it's even more the case. So what are you going to do? Are you going to accept it? Or are you going to reject it? Because it says in verse 9, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God, which he has given about his son. Whoever believes in the son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe God has made him out to be a liar. It's binary. You accept Jesus, accept the testimony, and you have life. You don't accept it, and you're making out God to be a liar. There isn't an in-between. It's not like you can have half and half. You either take what the witnesses are saying and accept it, or you make out God to be a liar. And so as we close, I want to ask you this morning, what's your verdict? Do you accept what the three witnesses are saying? Does it make sense? Do you go along with it? Do you support it? Do you trust it with your whole being? Or do you reject it and make God out to be a liar? Jesus, or the story in Matthew's Gospel is told of Jesus asking his disciples, who do people out there say that I am? And the disciples give some answers. And then Jesus turns to them and he says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replies, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. This morning, we're all being asked that same question. Who do you say that Jesus is? Just a man? Just someone who lived? Or the Son of God? The Son of God who came by water and blood and to whom the Spirit testifies. Do we accept that? Do we trust that? Or do we make God out to be a liar? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your spirit speaks into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives and makes the truth about Jesus abundantly clear, makes it relevant and practical and direct to each one of us. And Father, we thank you for speaking to us and we pray now that you would help us to respond, to recognise who Jesus is, to accept his lordship him being the Son of God, and to commit our lives to following him and to serving him. Father, we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.